Thank you, Todd. Again, good morning. Uh, it's great to be with you this morning. We're continuing in our sermon series, uh, The Ten Commandments. Before we dive in, I do feel like I should acknowledge something. As I look around the room, I can tell that some of you are saddened. Looks like about half of you. Um, and yes, uh, it is correct. Uh, the University of Alabama men's basketball team did lose last night, and I appreciate your concern on my behalf. I'm doing okay, but thank you. Um, that's enough basketball, I think, for one morning. I also recognize that most of you in here can probably count to 10, uh, and although I am from Alabama, I can also count to 10, and, but we are skipping from the Sixth Commandment to the Eighth Commandment this morning. The reason being is that the Seventh Commandment is on adultery, uh, and both Daniel and I thought that it would be best if the lead pastor took on that topic. Uh, and so I'm going to talk to you about money this morning, which should be really fun. Uh, but Pastor Daniel is away uh, with Will Nettleton, one of our old members. I just do want to acknowledge he's uh, getting ordained this weekend, uh, which is exciting. So uh, Pastor Daniel is doing that service, so we're excited for him and for Will. Uh, as is our custom, I'm going to ask that you stand as we now prepare to read God's word. Again, Exodus 20, the eighth commandment, verse 15. This is God's word. Moses says, you shall not steal. Would you join with me now in prayer? Father, the prophet Isaiah says, the grass withers and the flowers fade, but your word endures forever. We believe that's true, God, that your word is powerful, that it reveals you to us, and it reveals to us how you would like for us to live. God, I pray that this morning as we dive into your word that we would encounter you, the living God, and that we would be transformed. God, I pray that you give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts to understand. In Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. Rarely do I ever use visuals in my sermon. I'm actually not sure I have since we've started, but I wanted to start with this one this morning. Some of you may be familiar with this painting or at least recognize its authorship. Uh, this Norman Rockwell classic was first published, as you can see, on the cover of the Saturday Evening Post in 1936. And like most Rockwell paintings, it's meant to evoke humor, but at the same time shed some light on how society works here in America. And for those of you who may not be able to see clearly, what we see here is a woman buying a turkey, probably for her Thanksgiving dinner. And if you look closely, you'll see that both the woman and the butcher have this kind of silly smirk on their faces as they gaze intently up at the scale. And then when you look even closer, what you'll notice is the reason for the smirks is that the butcher is secretly pushing down on the scale in order to increase the price of the turkey, while at the same time the old lady is secretly pushing up on the scale to hopefully decrease uh, the price of the turkey. And although the, the painting might make us chuckle, the truth is that both are actually in violation of the Eighth Commandment. They're stealing. 
And yet, as Old Testament scholar Cecil Myers points out, most certainly both the butcher and the lovely lady would very much resent being called thieves. I imagine that most of you would not take too kindly to being called a thief either. You've probably never robbed a bank or stolen a car, and you try hard to walk the straight and narrow when it comes to handling your money. And yet, as we begin to unpack this commandment and dig a little deeper, I think we will all see that we may not be as innocent as we thought. I have three points this morning. Simply, first, how do we do it? How do we steal? Secondly, why do we do it? And then lastly, how do we stop? How we do it, why we do it, and how we stop. So let's begin. How do we steal? Uh, Once again, as we begin to dive in, I think this commandment is one that we, for the most part, assume is a non-issue. I think that might be a general consensus in the room. As a matter of fact, a Barna study came out in 92 revealed that close close to 90% of evangelical Christians believe they never violate this commandment. And just to be clear, these people could have checked the box seldom, rarely, every once in a while, but instead they checked the box that said, never ever do I violate this commandment. And yet, the famous German theologian Martin Luther argues that if we look at mankind in all its conditions, it is nothing but a vast, wide stable full of great thieves. Far from being picklocks and sneak thieves who loot a cash box, they sit in office chairs and are called great lords and honorable, good citizens. And yet with a great show of legality, they rob and steal. So in light of that quote, we must conclude one of two things. Either society has gotten a whole lot better since the 16th century, or we as Christians in America have forgotten what it means to steal. Clearly, I'm arguing for the latter, and I want to begin by once again highlighting how far-reaching this command really is in hopes that as we leave today, we might cease to deny our complicity in this wrongdoing and begin to repent and to reorder our lives in a way that brings honor and glory to God and goodness to humanity. So what does it mean to steal? Once again, I've found that the Heidelberg Catechism is extremely helpful in helping us to understand the full scope of what this commandment entails. Question 110 of the Catechism says, what does God forbid in the Eighth Commandment? And the answer is, He forbids not only outright theft and robbery, but in God's sight, theft also includes cheating and swindling our neighbor by schemes made to appear legitimate, such as inaccurate measurements of weight, size, or volume, fraudulent merchandising, counterfeit money, excessive interest, or any other means forbidden by God. In addition... He forbids all greed and pointless squandering of his gifts. Wow, that's a lot. And I think that for us to unpack that a little bit, the catechism gives us three very helpful categories as we seek to diagnose the theft 
in our own lives. First, outright theft, probably the most easy to diagnose. Secondly, we're going to look at cheating and swindling. And then lastly, we'll look at greed. So first, let's look at outright theft. Once again, I, I think most of us want to simply write this off as a non-issue. But I, as, I, as, I, as I was studying this week, I came across two interesting bits of data that I thought were informative. First, I read about a hotel that reported in its first year of business that they had to replace 38,000 spoons, 18,000 tiles, 355 coffee pots, and 100 Bibles. Secondly, I read that according to numerous estimates, as much as one-third of a product's cost goes to cover the various forms of stealing that occur on its way to the, to the marketplace. There's no question that we have a problem with theft in this country, and I find it hard to believe that 90% of all Christians in America are completely innocent of these crimes. I think it's important to note here that God does not place any weight upon the net worth of that which is stolen. Therefore, the excuse that, oh, it's just a hotel towel, they have plenty, they won't miss it, does not seem to matter so much to God. Theft is theft, and it's not okay. I think at a minimum, this commandment demands that we look closely at our behavior when it comes to personal property. Are we guilty of outright theft? And if so, we need to repent. And we need, to return, we need to turn from this behavior. Secondly, we're called to look at this idea of cheating and swindling. And although you may not have been implicated in the first category, I think many of us will be implicated in this one. Because here we begin to enter, we begin to enter into the gray area. That which we find it very easy to justify as maybe not exactly wrong, but maybe not exactly right either. The Catechism gives examples of this that were prominent in the time that it was written. Inaccurate measurements, much like we saw in the Rockwell painting. Fraudulent merchandising, counterfeit money, and excessive interest. But I'd like to look at what cheating and swindling sometimes looks like in Durham in 2018. And this is definitely not an exhaustive list, but hopefully will help us to see our sin a little more clearly. And so before you start defending yourself in your head, I just want you to listen and see if the Holy Spirit doesn't bring conviction. Might as well start with the big one. Income taxes are due in a few weeks. It is so easy to make that tax return look a little more favorable, to kind of soften the blow a bit. The Bible calls that stealing. For those of you who work in an industry where we have to bill hours, I know there's many of you here. How easy is it to embellish those hours here and there? The Bible calls that stealing. But what about when it comes to disability or welfare? What about those who don't have a disability, who are able to work, but instead choose to swindle the government? The Bible calls that stealing. Or maybe on a lesser note in our eyes, but not so much in God's eyes, the movie theater charges $6 for a candy bar. So I put one in my pocket instead of purchasing one from the concession. 
Bible calls that stealing. Or your friend has a Netflix subscription and they don't mind sharing their account name and password with you. What's the harm? The Bible calls that stealing. Obviously, there are countless examples out there of ways that we can manipulate our situation to save a dollar. And yet my hope this morning is that we would begin to see that these situations are opportunities for us to either choose to steal or not to steal. That we have a choice to make and that God cares about the choice that we make. Which leads us to this third category, greed. And I find it hard to believe that all of us aren't implicated here. And I think this one is so hard because our society has come pretty much full circle and now in many ways recognizes greed as a virtue rather than a vice. President Reagan himself said in 1984 that there is nothing wrong with greed since it turns the engines of the market. As I've been studying and praying this week, I've come to realize that we as Christians need to think long and hard about how the capitalist system that we are living in is shaping our hearts, shaping the way that we do business, how the world that we live in is fostering greed in each and every one of us. Can I get real with you for a moment? This whole sermon series has been rocking me, and once again this week I found myself convicted to the core. You see, I've, true, this is true. I recently stumbled into a niche market that is surprisingly unsaturated. That market is the secondary ticket market for concerts and shows that are happening in the Triangle. Some of you guys are writing this down. I can see it. And I discovered that it's very easy right now to purchase tickets to events and turn around and sell them almost immediately for a profit. And I was getting really good at this. And then this past week as I was reading and studying and praying, I got stuck on this idea of greed. And you know what one of the clearest evidences of greed is? It's that you do business with no concern whatsoever for the consumer. Greed, and capitalism for that matter, tells us that our goal should be to buy low and sell high, right? To sell goods and services at the highest price that the market will allow because that's the best way to make money. And greed could care less about how that affects society. So let me make this plain for you. I started this side business, buying and selling concert tickets, and then I took a step back this week and began to ask some hard questions. The question is, what am I offering to society through this business? How does society gain from my labor? And you know what I discovered? The only thing that society gains from my labor, from this business endeavor, is more expensive tickets. That is what I'm offering to Durham, North Carolina, to you, through my labor. And you know what's sick? It's sick that I could do that for a season and not even recognize that there's something wrong with that. I had so embraced the economics of capitalism as right that I was ignoring any sort of ethical issues that might be present with what I was doing. C.S. Lewis, in commenting on how greed was, is taking over, said, I wish we didn't live in a world where buying and selling things seems to have become almost more important than either producing or using them. 
Church, we need to look at our hearts, especially when it comes to our business practices. What is our goal? What is motivating our work? Because if your goal is simply to accumulate wealth, then you will bow down to the rules of the market and you will take advantage of people at every turn. And you will feel fully justified by declaring, that's just good business. That's just good business. That's how you make money. The English reformer Thomas Bacon, he offers a different ethic. An ethic that stands in stark contrast to the ethic embraced by our capitalistic society. He says, they that exercise themselves in merchandise ought so to travail that they may deal truly and faithfully with all men, having ever an eye not so much unto their own private profit as to the commodity of the country wherein they dwell, remembering also that we be not born for ourselves, but to do good to others and to serve others. Or put even more simply, again by Martin Luther, the Christian cobbler has a special duty to make a good shoe and sell it at a fair price. Is that true of your work, Christ Central? Do you strive to make a good product and sell it at a fair price? Or does greed get in the way? If so, the Bible says that we are robbing society of what we can and should be offering. You shall not steal. Which leads us to our second point. Why do we do it? What is wrong with us? What is wrong with me? Why did I start a side business that offered no benefit to society whatsoever? Because I love money. I love it. I love money. As much as I wish it wasn't true, I know that money has a powerful hold on my heart. And I wish I could use the excuse of ignorance, but the Bible is full of warnings about the love of money. Listen to what Jesus says. He says, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. No one can serve two masters, for, he, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. You can't. The Bible makes plain that at the root of all sin is idolatry. Idolatry being when we worship created things rather than the creator. And there's so many different forms of idolatry and so many ways that idolatry rears its ugly head, but no other idol is specifically named in the Bible more than money. God seems to be keyed in on this fact that this particular idol is pervasive. This particular idol is dangerous. If you're not careful, it will own you. Own you. And we all know that's true. It's not whether or not it's true. It's, it's how true is it in my heart. How quickly does our relationship with money shift from a healthy desire to something that we treasure, something that we can't live without, something that controls our hearts and in turn our behavior. And it's when this happens, when money becomes our heart's treasure, that our pursuit of money becomes suspect, that we begin to break the eighth commandment. And all of a sudden, we find ourselves doing things 
in order to get money that we might not have considered before. Because we've got to have it, no matter what the cost. Which leads us to our third and final point. What do we do? So what do we do? How do we stop stealing? What I'm about to say is going to sound ridiculous to many of you, but I ask that you bear with me. I think the most powerful way to counteract our love of money is by giving it away. Now, before you write me off as crazy, I want you to know this is not my idea. It actually comes from Jesus. Paul informs us in Acts 20 that Jesus said, it is more blessed to give than receive. And the wording is critical here. Jesus does not say it is more obedient or more righteous or more honorable to give than receive. No, he says it's more blessed. When we look at that word blessed, it's best defined as denoting transcendent happiness. Jesus is not saying that it's the right thing to do. Rather, he's saying there is more joy to be found by giving stuff away than by acquiring it. How could this be? How could giving stuff away possibly produce more joy than receiving it? I think the answer is that in our generosity, we break the chains of bondage that money holds on us. We tear down the altar of money in our hearts. And when we do that, it frees us to something, to, to worship something, to love something more worthy as our treasure. I love how Reverend Kent, Kent Hughes says it. He says, every time I give, I declare that money does not control me. Perpetual generosity is a perpetual de-deification of money. And the beauty is that when money no longer has a hold on us, we can begin to allow it to have an appropriate place in our hearts. I want to conclude by looking at God's fundamental design for wealth. And you might ask, why didn't we start here? And the reason is because we first have to recognize that we worship this thing, that it has us gripped, that our hearts are gripped. So we have to remove it from our hearts in order to begin to even think about how God wants us to view wealth and how he wants us to manage and handle our wealth. So look now with me. I'm looking at Genesis chapter 1. Here we have the first example of personal property. Shortly after God created Adam and Eve, he placed them in the garden. He blessed them and he says, verse 28, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth. And every tree with seed in its fruit, you shall have them for food. And then skipping over to chapter 2, verse 15, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. Here we see God's design, his master plan when it comes to wealth and property. Chapter 1 highlights how God has given this extravagant gift to Adam and Eve. He gives them the whole garden, all of it, all the plants, all the animals now belong to Adam and Eve. And yet what chapter 2 reveals is that there are some strings attached to this gift. The garden is theirs, but clearly it still belongs to God in some sense, evidenced by his ability to dictate 
how Adam and Eve are to manage the garden. Let me try to make this clear. Years ago, when Stacy and I were first married, we were a part of a small church on the other side of town called St. John's Missionary Baptist. It just so happened that Phil and Tracy Ford were members of this church. If you don't know who that is, you must be a dookie. Phil Ford is the second greatest basketball player to ever play for the University of North Carolina. And my wife hit it off with Phil's wife, Tracy. And as a, as a result, one weekend, Tracy asked us if we would house sit their house. Let me tell you something. It's not so bad being Phil Ford. Their house is amazing. Stacy and I got to enjoy this beautiful home in North Raleigh. We watched a movie in their home theater. We shot pool in the room where all of Phil's ACC tournament trophies live. It's incredible. However, at no point during my stay in the Ford Mansion did I forget that this was not my house. I was very careful with everything I touched. I was very careful to put his trophies back where they were after I <laughs> held them as my own. I knew all along that my time there would end, that I was simply taking care of someone else's property for a season. The Bible calls this kind of relationship stewardship. Adam and Eve were God's stewards. He gave them the garden, but not to do with it whatever they pleased, but to manage it according to God's intentions. And church, when we live generously, we live into this idea that all that we have is truly a gift from God. It doesn't belong to us, but has been bestowed upon us as God's faithful stewards. I love how Jerry Bridges really summarizes this. He says, in light of this truth of stewardship, we have three choices when it comes to our stuff. We can believe that what's yours is mine and I'm going to take it. What's mine is mine and I'll keep it. Or we can believe that what's mine is God's and I'll share it. Now we kind of begin to see the full weight of the Eighth Commandment. Much like the other commandments that we've looked at, we cannot say that we obey this commandment if we just embrace the negative, if we just do not steal. But we also have to embrace the positive. We have to live into what God is calling us to. To keep the, the Eighth Commandment is not simply to not steal, but in turn to see all of our stuff as belonging to God. And therefore to use our resources in a way that glorifies the owner. This is why the fourth century church father John Chrysostom could make this statement about our lack of generosity. He says, this also is theft, not to share one's own possessions. He says, I beg you, remember this without fail, that to not to share our own wealth with the poor is theft from the poor and deprivation of their means of life. We do not possess our own wealth but theirs. To truly obey this commandment is begin to see our wealth as a gift from God and to use it for His glory. And I'm not here to tell you exactly what that looks like. I'm not going to now mandate on you what generosity looks for you, looks like for you. But I think we need to ask those hard questions. I do want to encourage you. There's some people in this church that have done this weekend retreat called Journey to Generosity. I want to highly encourage you to consider that. 
And it's a, it's a weekend retreat where they begin to walk you through some of these principles. And they call it journey to generosity because there's a recognition that there's a battle going on in our hearts. That we don't just flip a switch and become generous. But we have to win that battle. We have to dethrone money in our hearts. And so they take you on that journey. I would encourage you to do that. And we will let you know the next time that a treat, retreat is available. But we need to ask those hard questions. We need to look and see what's going on in our hearts. Because I truly believe if we begin to live by this principle that it all belongs to him, that our city would be transformed. As we prepare to leave this morning, once again, I don't know about you, but I feel exposed in my sin. I feel convicted. Convicted by the ways that I've committed theft through uh, swindling, through greed, through not being generous. And I'm realizing that Luther's words were spot on. If we look at mankind in all its conditions, it truly is nothing but a, wa a vast, wide, stable, full of great thieves. So what hope then is for us, a room full of thieves? And I ask that you forgive my redundancy if you were here two weeks ago, but once again, we must look to the, to the cross. Because only there will we find hope. And what do we find when we look to the cross? We find our Lord and Savior hanging between two thieves. Two men who were rightly being punished for their unlawful behavior. And then we bend our ear and we hear the conversation that's happening there. And what does the thief say to Jesus? He says, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And what is Jesus' reply? He says, you will be with me in paradise. Church, in order to obey this commandment, we need a heart change. We need to have our affections taken over by something more beautiful, more glorious than money. Because then and only then will we begin to live out this commandment. And the good news of the gospel is that Jesus Christ is that thing that's more beautiful, more glorious than money. He took on our thievery so that we might be with him in paradise. And it's his radical generosity, his giving up of everything of himself that causes us to see our sin, our selfishness, our greed, our cheating and swindling, and it causes us to repent. And then as he extends us, his grace to us, as he promises us eternal life with him, we are motivated and encouraged by the Spirit to turn from our wicked ways and live a life that's modeled after the one whose generosity knew no bounds. That's my hope and prayer for myself and my hope and prayer for you. Let's pray. God, I confess that I fail miserably to obey this commandment. My view of money is so far from what you have called it to be. And I know that there is ugly idolatry at work in me. And I know that's true for many, if not every person in this room. God, we need your help. We repent from the ways that we failed to obey this commandment. We ask that you would Show us what it looks like to change the way we think about money, the way we view money, that we would live into your call of stewardship and generosity. 
and that through that we would experience joy and freedom. God, I pray that for myself and pray that for each person in this room. In Jesus' name, amen.